Welcome to the Richard Brooks Show. I help you build a business that matters. Network marketing isn't easy. Success at any level requires self-motivation, persistence, enthusiasm, networking, promotion, courage, and work. I've interviewed hundreds of global influencers, network marketing gurus, network marketing heroes, representing dozens of companies. Sales leaders have demonstrated that anyone can build a four-year career. The Richard Brooks Show is a collection of inspirational stories of what is possible. These achievements are possible and inspirational like Olympic athletes. And like Olympic athletes, most people will never be one. Join me as I hear the stories of global influencers, network marketing gurus, and network marketing heroes. Hey everybody, Richard Blissbrook here with yet another The Authentic Networker podcast. And today we have the great This is a lifelong achievement award for me and a great <laughs> honor that I have as my guest, Jack Canfield on this podcast. Hello, Jack, and thank you for being here. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's uh, you have been uh, uh, somebody that I have studied and followed for my entire career. I have been uh, pursuing success for 44 years, and you've been along for that journey for most of it. And so I want to thank you for your contributions of inspiration, of confidence, of critical thinking, motivation, vision, and um, just being a friendly voice along the way. Because, you know, one of the, when I think about you, and I think about you as a, as a mentor and a coach and an inspirational guide, I think of a man that is always kind and leads with his heart and is always smiling and seems to always bring joy to the conversation. And I can't always say that about every coach or every guide. So thank you for the journey. Well, thank you for noticing. <laughs> well, you probably know some people that, you know, are angry coaches. <laughs> I, know. I know there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> I don't know what they're angry about, but so I wanted to tell people um, just a, a few things about you. I, I, you know, there's going to be all kinds of biographical information about being this podcast that people can read. But uh, some things that I think are interesting that you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about before I get down through running through. But, you know, you, you're an interesting bird when it comes to being a coach and an author and an inspirational speaker. You have a master's degree from Harvard in psychological something, psychological education. And, you know, that's pretty rare, but I think the most interesting thing that I found about your Harvard education is you got a C plus and you were labeled an average writer at Harvard. Do you remember uh, that? Yeah, my freshman year, I took freshman composition. It was an introductory writing course. I got a C plus. One paper, I got C with five pluses after it. And I said, can't you give me a B with five minuses? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, you know, I'm always fascinated by the contrast, and I wonder, 
if your professors at Harvard realized they gave you a C plus, and then you went on to sell 500,000 books. And, uh, you know, one of, one of your esteemed, uh, you and I share a Guinness World Book of Records. So you are a Guinness World Book of Records holder for having the most simultaneous New York Times bestsellers at the same time, five books at the six. same time, six, six. books yeah. at the same time, beating out Stephen King, right. which, you know, he might be a more famous author than you, but you've sold more books and have more bestsellers than he. I, on the other hand, am the oldest, whitest, fat guy to ever learn how to surf. That's in <laughs> Those are a little different records that we hold. Uh, but then, you know, when you go on to uh, look at, you know, how many books you've sold and uh, the revenue and the lives that you've impacted, and probably this is the most profound contrast, maybe you can speak to it. 144 publishers turned you down for Chicken Soup for the Soul. And now that book has... I don't know, impacted many lives, created. But the one interesting fact that I read about Chicken Soup for the Soul is children in China read Chicken Soup for the Soul to learn how to read English. Yeah, that was exciting. That we, one, uh, one of our goals was to have a, a, a what was it say, a, a billion books sold. Uh, yeah. And so we're at 600 million at the moment. And 315 million of those are in China. And one of the reasons is that the Anhui Publishing Company, which is about a square mile of publishing and warehousing, printing presses and all that, decided to buy the entire series and print it over there. And what they did was they also decided to print part of them as textbooks with the, uh, Chinese on one page and English on the other. So literally the kids in school are reading the chicken soup for the soul stories as a way to learn English. And then if they can't figure out the word they can look over on the other side of the page and it has it in Chinese. And the reason is that these stories are so interesting and so moving emotionally and they're uplifting and inspiring, which is not traditional Chinese publishing. Uh, in fact, I had a professor at the University of Toronto who teaches Chinese uh, literature tell me recently that Chinese literature in general has always been very flowery, very traditional, kind of almost like Shakespearean English, and that the chicken soup books have actually changed that and that uh, people are writing in a much more modern way because of the fact that we've sold 300 million books in China and it's impacting the actual literary scene, which is hard to get, you know I mean? Because if you go back to my, my C in English writing at Harvard, and I think most of those professors are dead, so they probably don't even know that I'm out there. Uh, some of my classmates do, and I've been invited back to address, the speak at Harvard, which is really fun. Um, but the reality is for me, that it was never about um, you know the money. It was never about the the fame and the fortune, which has all come. But it was about making a difference. And we used to have a a phrase that we were changing the world one story at a time. And now we have over twenty thousand stories that have been published in the books. There's over two hundred books in the series. And um, again, in India, there's over a hundred million books have sold there. And what's fascinating about India when I was there, you'd see these people on the street hunkered down, they sit on, I don't know how they do it, because I'm an old white guy too with bad knees, but they, they sit on the, with their knees and their butts almost touching the floor. 
and they're reading a newspaper. And it'll be five people sitting around reading a newspaper. And the average book is passed around to six, 10 people. And so even though we've only sold 100 million, we probably had a billion people in India read our books. And that's been very exciting. So I'm thrilled by it. I mean, we, we knew we wanted to make a big difference, but the difference we've made is way beyond anything we could have comprehended. Do you have that inkling, Jack, about in the early days when you wanted to write, when you had ideas about writing, did you have an inkling that, you're, that you had a style that, that you needed to stick with to be in integrity with yourself that was perhaps controversial or not popular or not mainstream? Did you have a sense that you were a little bit off the beaten path with your style? I always, I write what I call conversational style. In fact, I teach people to teach that way too. You know, there's a lot of people that go to Toastmasters and they study certain speakers who, like Tony Robbins, very dynamic, hits himself on the chest. That's not me. And um, I talk like I'm having coffee with someone. And, uh, you know, what I'm doing, I've talked to 20,000 people, an Herbalife convention in India of 8,000 people. And I talk to them like I'm talking to you. And that's, and I write that way. I write as if I was talking to you and I will read it again. And, and with Chicken Super to Soul, every story in that book was rewritten at least six times. And it wasn't to make it more flowery. It was actually to make it less so. Like uh, my sister-in-law is an interior designer, decorator. And she said, good interior decoration is taking stuff out, not putting stuff in. Because most people live in a cluttered, look at the antique store, which I would do, you know, because I collect all these things from around the world uh, when I go. And she's always taking them out and she creates a better space, better, you know. So I think editing for me has been the same way. I love making metaphors. I remember when I was writing The Success Principles, I wrote a story about a guy who wrote Sleepless in Seattle. And he basically, his first novel uh, was, his first screenplay was a romance. Uh, but it was took place in the Cold War era, and nobody was interested in the Cold War because the, the, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. So he said, what's a, uh, it's a topic that's timeless? And he said, well, romance is timeless. What can I do that's different? He said, it's always boy meets girl, and then there's conflict, conflict, conflict. You know, the parents don't like them. They get separated. Uh, you know, look who, who's coming for dinner. It was a black guy and a white guy, you know, and they got a white girl. They got together and the parents didn't like it. And you have to overcome all these obstacles. He said, what if the people don't meet until the last scene? And so I wrote, I wrote up all that and how he had been rejected numerous, numerous times. And so that was a story. And then I had another story about a coffee bean uh, roaster who happened to be in Seattle, who was sleeping on the coffee bean bags because he couldn't afford a bed at the time. And now he's very, very wealthy, makes hundreds of millions of dollars. But it was interesting. What I said was, while, while someone was writing Sleepless in Seattle, that's how I started the next chapter, Joe was in Seattle sleepless because he was sleeping on coffee beans. And that to me was so freaking cool to be able to yeah, make that right. segue. But other than that, I don't try too hard. I just want to tell a story, have what we call the chicken soup moment, which is where you kind of pull the rug out from someone and make them cry, make them laugh, give them goosebumps. And um, we call that the chicken soup moment. And um, that's what we look for. I always said, if someone reads a story and they want to call their mom and say, mom, I got to read this to you or Richard, you need to buy this book. Then we've succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll bet you share my uh, angst that when we're listening to political speeches, 
we wish. Could somebody just put the teleprompter down and just talk. tell us talk what they believe? Yeah, yeah, talk from your heart. Of course, unfortunately, they'd probably say something that would get uh, repeated a thousand times and raked over the coals. But Well, we know a few people who leave their script and actually do that, and they do get in trouble for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll go for authenticity over the snafus anytime. Me too. Um, a question that comes to me, Jack, is your impact globally has been, wow, just unprecedented. Um, number one success coach in the world, um, impacted mil millions and millions of people, like going on billions. Did you have that vision early on? You started off teaching inner city kids in Chicago. This is a long way from that platform. Right. What were you thinking about back then? And did you have the vision of I want to go big, or did you start uh, like one step at a time from a vision standpoint? I think it was one step at a time. I remember one of my mentors, W. Clement Stone, said, do what you do so well that when you do it well, people will want to bring you up to the next level to do that thing well. And so basically, I, I my career has been kind of just following my heart. I was a student at Harvard, as you mentioned, and um, I was a Chinese history major as an undergraduate, really. And what happened was, I someone said, there's an easy A. I needed an easy A. I was taking all the wrong hard courses. And so my roommate came back and said, this is the easiest course I ever took. You just have to show up and they give you an A. I went, what's that? I'll take it. And it was called Social Relations 10, Soccer 10. It was the humanistic side of the, of the psychology department at Harvard. RATS was the psych department. Socrel was the kind of human interaction behavioral side. And um, I went and took this, what was it? the equivalent of an encounter group. We just sat around, talked about our feelings, talked about our goals, our visions, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, et cetera. And it was cool. And I said, I want to go up and do that. And they said, well, you can't because you didn't have any undergraduate psychology courses except this one. And so you can't get into grad school in psychology. Said, but you're a history buff, so you can get into high school teaching, teach history either at the college or high school level. So that's what I did, basically. Went to the University of Chicago, studied um, uh, teaching, went back to the University of Mass, which is actually where I got my uh, MA in, in psychological education, and was all, all but dissertation for a PhD. I made a mistake of writing a book before I graduated, and the book took off. And like Cheech and Chong in one of those movies said, we don't need those stinking badges. And so right. I I don't need no stinking PhD. I'm getting invited all over the world to speak and they're paying me money. I don't want to sit around and write a dissertation. I'd write, I'd write a book. They pay you for that. So I dropped out at that point. But the point is, I went to the University of Chicago. They had a tour of schools where you could intern at your second year. And one of them was a DuSable High School. And it was a ranked in Time Magazine as the worst high school in America. And I remember wow. we took our field trip there. All these teachers were... The good teachers had, had transferred out. The ones who couldn't, didn't. And so the teachers weren't that good. The students were really, they were, they were interesting, to say the least. They had guards at the door with guns and all that in the school. But I felt like I could do something here. I could make a difference here. I could be useful here. So that's what I did. That's how I ended up teaching in an inner city high school for a year. And um, as a result of that, I ended up getting hired by another person who was from Harvard, 
putting together uh, a staff to teach at a job course center, which was teaching kids how to, who dropped out of school, teaching them job skills so they could go back into the workplace and uh, get a GED degree. And I ended up being hired by there. She hired two from Stanford, two from Chicago, two from Harvard, young Turks. We were all bright. And while I was there, one of them had studied achievement motivation under David McClellan at Harvard, who was the world's expert on motivation at the time, how to motivate people to achieve more. So I ended up taking that class with my friend Woody and studying that. And then I went to the Stone Foundation, W. Clement Stone, who was one of Napoleon Hill's yeah. best friends and took a course there. And that's when they decided to close down the Job Corps Center. I'm looking for a job, they hired me. And I got to work with Stone, who was like a genius about achievement and success. So each step was just like the next thing led to the next thing led to the next thing. And when I was working for Stone, I went to a conference, I met a guy who was a professor at UMass. He said, I'll give you a full scholarship if you come and work on your doctorate. While I was there, I started the Growth Center. I had people coming for weekend workshops. I married a woman who had a trust fund, not huge, 6,000 every quarter. She got so 24,000 a year, but we were enough to buy a piece of property. We built a big training center on it. And I taught gestalt therapy and psychosynthesis, transactional analysis, NLP, everything I get my hands on, we bring in, I'd learn. And then one day I took this training called Insight, which was 350 people in a room, like yes, life spring, those kind of things. And I went, ooh, I yeah. want to do that. That's more people, that's more impact. And it was during those years that when I started to think about the things that motivated people the most were stories. Somehow you tell a story, people go, oh, it's possible. I could do that. And so that's when the, the idea for Chicken Soup for the Soul began. And then, of course, the rest is history. Yeah, that is, that's some great history. And I love the stepping stone story, Jack. I, I, uh, I was really impacted by reading the Steve Jobs story. And I, I should have counted them. And it'd be interesting, your own story, to count them. But to count the number of people that if you hadn't met this person, you wouldn't have met this person, then you wouldn't have met this person. Yeah, absolutely. And so many of them, you know, they seem like dead ends. Like I met this person, I, maybe I had a bad business deal with this person, but it led to this person, which led to this person. And then in the end, you have the Jack Canfield story, you have the Apple story. And without every one of those players, you're not sure what you would have had, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I kind of believe I would have met someone else somehow, some way, uh, that something in me was wanting to move forward. Sure. The law of attraction was attracting me to, I always wanted to, to, to contribute more. I, you know, it was always like, how can I contribute more? So, you know, how, my first book was called 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom, which grew out of my work of building self-esteem in the the, the classes I was doing, which then said, wow, I don't know a lot of people doing this. I need to share this with other teachers. So there was always that sense of wanting to get it to more people, which, you know, is still what I want to do, you know, and it hasn't. Yeah. So most of the people listening or watching this, Jack, are, well, let's call it struggling at some level, like they're, they're yearning, they want to break out. They want to do something bigger with their life. That's why they're listening to a podcast. They're looking for that one story or that one distinction that might, you know, 
be the tipping point for them. What do you end up usually telling that group of people that's the up and comers, the people that are yearning for a breakout? What kind of coaching do you give them? If you could boil down all of your books and all of your knowledge into the, hey, here's three questions or what do you tell somebody? Say buy my book. And I don't mean that in a self-serving way, but it's like it's like when, when you ask me, you know, like what are the three most important principles? Yeah, there, there it is. I really encourage people to do it. Not because I need another dollar. I mean, really, I get a dollar twenty every time that book gets sold. So that is not making me wealthy. I've got other things, I have huge investments, I've got, you know, royalties from lots of books and all that. But what I do say is that it success is a system. If I asked you, Richard, if you could only keep three organs in your body, which ones would you keep? That's not enough to keep you alive. You need your liver, your spleen, your kidney, your lungs, your brain, all that stuff. So what I teach is a system of success. And a system has steps to it in the right order. So if you like, if you do the combination on a lock, and you have the right numbers, I don't care if you're young, old, bright, not so bright, you know, live in Hawaii like you do, live in California, live in Paris, France, live in Bolivia, the lock has to open. The problem is most people are missing some of the numbers or they have them in the wrong order. And I don't care how hard you work, if you keep doing the wrong numbers or missing a number, it will never open. And the same thing is true. A lot of people are doing a lot of hard work. They're doing some of the right things, but they're still not getting what they want. And I would say that you have to learn a system and I'll give you just a distal of this and I'll tell you three things. So I'll, I will answer your question. But I think the first thing I tell everyone you have to do is you have to believe it's possible. You've got to start with the belief that you can, in fact, achieve what you want. And most people are, have limiting beliefs. You and I know because I've read your books, you've read mine, that beliefs are critical. And most of our beliefs were formed between the age of three and eight. And then they became unconscious. We don't even know we have them. We have beliefs about money. We have beliefs about how you have to know people, beliefs about our ability, how smart we are, how attractive we are, what a white person can do, a black person can do, a woman can do, depending on where we live, our religious beliefs, some of which are empowering, some of which not so much. So we have to become very aware of at least choosing to believe that anything we want is possible. The second thing is you have to decide what it is you want. You have to decide. Most people never decide. And you and I know that the, the word decide comes from the Latin decidere, which means to cut off. It means to cut off all your options. You know, you and I have a friend named Eric Worre who wrote a book called Go Pro. And he basically said at some point, I cut off all options and I said, I'm going to do this network marketing thing professionally. I'm going to, I'm going to devote my time to it. Your concept of a four-year career. You know, if I really put my time and energy into this, I can literally create financial uh, abundance, independence, freedom, whatever, within a you know four or five year period if I really work at it. But I have to make that choice. A lot of people don't make that choice. And so I also have to cut off a lot of the distractions. You know, the average North American watches three to six hours of television a day. W. Clement Stone, my mentor, was worth 600 million back in the 70s when he hired me, asked me three questions when I went to work for him. Number one, do you take 100% responsibility for your life? I said, I don't know. He said, that's not an answer. It's a yes or no answer, son. Think about it. I, I was stumped. He said, do you complain about anything? I said, yeah. Do you ever blame anyone for anything? I said, yeah. 
You ever make an excuse? I said, yeah. He said, you don't take 100% responsibility. We'll work on that. Number two, do you watch television? I said, yes. He said, how many hours a day? I said, I don't know. He said, think. <laughs> I did. I said, I think about three. You know, I get up, I watch the like a Good Morning America type thing. I watch the news when I get home. And usually an hour after that, something at night before I go to the... He said, I want you to cut out one hour of TV a day. I said, okay. He said, that's going to give you 365 additional hours a year. Divide that by a 40-hour work, that, that work week. That's nine... It's nine and a half additional weeks. That's two and a quarter months more than most people have. That's like, I'm giving you a 14 month year to achieve things. I thought, wow, that's really cool. So I've done that. You know, I, I limit my distractions. So the, the next thing is you, you have to take, well, what was the third thing he said? Um, trying to remember. Oh, he said, I want you to make a list of the five people you spend the most time with. I said, okay. He said, put a plus next to all the positive people, a minus sign next to the negative. Don't spend time with the minus signs. I said, Bill, because is it called him W. Clement Stone, but he just wanted to be unique. His name was Bill Stone. And I said, Bill, my mom's name has a minus sign. Said, <laughs> right. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> he said, Christmas and Easter. That's it. You know? That's I said, it. Yeah. Okay. So make a decision. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that was my intake interview there. And so take 100% responsibility means no excuse making, no blaming, no no complaining. And I teach a formula, which you know, called E plus R equals O. There's events in your life. You then have a response to that event that equals the outcomes you get. So someone comes along with an opportunity, like, you know, sign up for my network marketing company come to this party, come to this thing, read this book, take my seminar, sign up for this webinar, whatever it might be. And how you respond to that determines your future. Everything you're currently experiencing, and I'm still talking to all the people that are struggling, everything you're currently experiencing is a result of how you, how you responded to an earlier event. Someone gave you a $1,000 bonus, you went to Vegas, you blew it, it was fun, you have a memory, but your net worth didn't go up. You didn't go take a seminar that could have changed your life forever and made you $1,000 a week more for the rest of your life. So you've got to be willing to take a look and say, everything I'm experiencing, I either created it, allowed it, or co-created it in some way. You know, like we don't create everything, but we allow a lot of stuff to happen to us. And even if there's a hurricane, like there is, as we record this in uh, you know Texas and Louisiana, what happens is you have a response. When they said, get out of town, did you get out of town? A lot of people didn't, some of those people died. And so the reality is everything you're currently experiencing, the quality of your relationships, how much money you have, the, how much health you have, how much happiness you have, is a result of the thoughts, the images, and the behaviors, and what you say and do. And that's it, that's all you can control. And so once you know that and you take responsibility, then I would say, determine what your life purpose is. I don't know if you have what you call a life purpose day, but my mind is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy. So whatever your vision is, I want to inspire you to believe it's possible and give you tools to make it happen. And I'm, I don't care what your mother wants, the Pope wants, what Richard wants for you, whatever. What do you want for you? That's the key. And once you have that, and you know that purpose, and you create a vision for your ideal life that would fulfill that purpose, turn that into specific goals, turn that into a plan. Don't be, a, don't be addicted to your plan, but have a plan. Be willing to adjust your plan, respond to feedback, continuously take action, have an accountability partner or a mastermind group to hold you accountable, and never give up. 
then you're going to be successful. And most people don't do that. And so that that is a little distillate of the yeah. of the success principles. Although there's 67 principles in the book, those right. are you've got to do. This is the book, by the way. This is the Bible, folks, right there. Go to Amazon or go to jackcanfield.com, buy that book. And then I'd love to hear you talk about this, Jack. You know, one of the things that's been popular for the last 20 or 30 years when it comes to books and personal development is, um, you know, I read two books a week. In the last five years, I've read 723 books. Mm -hmm. There's that paradigm, you know, putting a notch in your gun. No, I haven't actually. Uh, I have very few books. And um, my relationship with books is if I'm going to have a book, I'm going to study it to the degree that I can teach it. And if I can't teach it, I'm not sure what good it is to me. Yeah. What, uh, so when you, when you recommend this book to somebody, what do you suggest someone do with this book beyond reading it? Yeah, two things. I'm, I'm, again, I'm going to sound self-serving. I don't mean to, but I actually wrote a book this year that came out called The Success Principles Workbook. Yeah, and the, reason right. I wrote this, the reason I wrote that book, Richard, is because there's 17 principles in there, all the ones I mentioned, and it's like a workshop. So literally there are, there are sheets to fill out, there are exercises to do, there are guided visualizations that you can, uh, we put URLs where you can go and actually listen to a guided visualization on your computer. All, everything, if you were taking a, two-day workshop with me is in that book. And so you want to do the book. I almost called that book, Don't Read This Book. And, and I, <laughs> in a subtitle, would be, Don't Read It, Do It. And right. um, because it, I've, you've heard the phrase by now, but I, I coined a term years ago called, you don't want to end up with shelf esteem. You got all these books on your shelf that you read, but you don't do anything. I love them. that. I you know? love that. Yeah. yeah. And um, so basically for me, I study a book as well. I've read 3,000 books. Um, I had to add that up one day for some tax purposes. But what happens is I actually would have been better off to read maybe 1,000 and study them more. Now, there are books I've studied and read over and over and over and over. My own, of course, because I'm constantly teaching it. Bob Proctor's books, some books by Dennis Whaley, some books by Brian Tracy, uh, you know, things like that. W. Clement Stone's books, uh, Think and yeah. Grow Rich, uh, right. Swaddles, The Science of Getting Rich. You know, yeah. Bob Proctor, every January, reads The Science of Getting Rich and Think and Grow Rich every year. Every year. Yeah. Reads it and uh, if you ask him to open his briefcase, both of those books will be in. I don't care what day of the year it is. He's constantly yeah. studying that. And I think it's true. You know, they always say the best way to learn anything is to teach it. And that's why I always encourage people to take my train the trainer program, because when you learn to teach it, it becomes Velcroed into your system. And your students are always going to ask you questions you don't know how to answer. And that's going to force you to go back to the material and learn it so you can answer it. I mean, as a high school teacher, that was the one thing I learned. You know, someone would ask me a question. Our standard answer, I'm sure you've all heard it if you're listening to this, um, teacher would say, that's a good question. Why don't you look that up for homework tonight and tell the class tomorrow what you found? That was the teacher saying, I don't know the freaking answer. <laughs> <laughs> and you have like 3,000 train-the-trainer graduates, right? You have 3,000 mini-me's around the world. 3,500 in 117 countries now, yeah. And what do those people do? 
Well, they do a lot of things. Some of them do just that. They teach the success principles. Some of them are teaching lots of things, like they're a certified NLP practitioner and they're teaching this on the side. Some people are real estate people running, you know, how to flip your house, but they're integrating the principles in. One guy was a, um, you know, how to buy properties and flip them. And he took our train, the training program, started integrating these personal development things in there so people would actually do the work. Because one thing, how many people do you know have gone to a boot camp on how to do anything, you know, how to double your income, do real estate, you know, whatever. And they spend like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars and they don't go home and do it. And right. so basically, uh, he started doing these activities to help them deal with their limiting beliefs, to teach them how to have a mastermind group, how to stay accountable and so forth. And people started coming to him and saying, could you do a whole weekend just of that personal development stuff? So now he's doing as many personal development workshops online, like all of us right now, as he was doing um, real estate, you know, flipping. Right. Yeah. All right. Here's a conundrum for you. Um, I call it the catch 22 of motivation. So, you know, as I was listening to you distill the principles, 17 principles down into seven minutes, that was pretty good, by the way. That was brilliant. If somebody was taking notes, they're going, what? It's a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, as I listened to that as somebody putting myself in the mentality of somebody wanting to break out, feeling like maybe I'm struggling or overwhelmed, a, a problem that I run into coaching people is what I call the catch-22 of motivation, which is, you have, you have to actually get motivated to learn how to get motivated. Yes. And I, I think that's what, like, keeps so many people from, like, taking that next step and the next step and the next step. And, and so how do you deal with that with people? How do you, how do you coach people through uh leaning in to learning how to empower yourself when you feel disempowered well if i'm coaching them they're already motivated in other words if i'm if i'm working with someone they've already decided to pay some money and and then then they've demonstrated the fact that they're willing to invest time and money into mm -hmm. their development the real yeah. issue becomes how do you get people to take that first step and, um, you know, I always say, look, here's the deal. Um, you know, the decisions you make today are going to make the, the life you have tomorrow, just like the, what the decisions you made in the past or the decisions you have now. I like to show this cartoon when I do live seminars, I'm enrolling people. It shows two dinosaurs sitting on a rock. It shows Noah's Ark floating away in a distance. You see two giraffe heads, two elephant heads, two monkeys. And the one dinosaur looks at the other and says, Oh crap, was that today? And so it's like it's like they missed the opportunity to be on that boat and therefore became extinct. I mean, obviously that's not what happened evolutionarily, but you get the idea right. that we're always being presented with opportunities. I think Robert Kiyosaki said something like, People will see an opportunity and walk right by it. You know, they don't recognize one when they see it. And so it, we have to like you have to somehow engage them in a vision of what's possible you know and so you have to talk about what is it you want you know do you want a private school for your kids 
Do you want to be able to have some free time? Do you want to be able to take your family on a vacation when COVID-19 lockdowns over? Do you want to stop paying your college bills off for the next 20 years and get them over with in the next couple of years? You appeal to what it is that they want on the other side of the river that's going to get them to get in a boat. And you have to make that so tantalizing and so believable. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they talk a lot about in sales, you got to find out what's the person want. So one-on-one, -on -one, we can do that easily. You and I can talk with someone and say, how's your life working on a scale of one to 10? How, what would you rate it at? And they go six. You say, what would it take to make it a 10? Well, I'd like to have more money. I'd like to have more free time. I'd like to be happy. I'd like my teenage daughter to talk to me, whatever. Now we know how to motivate them to do what we do because we can promise them that it'll get us there. And if we can share um, testimonials of people who actually have those things, tell stories. Uh, I'm writing a book right now called Living the Success Principles. And uh, it's got a hundred, it'll have 101 stories, like a chicken soup book of people who either read the, the success principles or took a workshop with me um, and then applied a principle or all of them and what happened for their life. And when people read those, they go, I want that. You know, I have a hearing problem. I want that. I'm born black in the South to a single mom and, and he did it. I want that. And so those stories make it believable. I think that's what Chicken Soup for the Soul did for so many people is you, yeah. you saw people that were just like, and I'll share this with you too. The first edition of the Success Principles, I interviewed 75 of the most successful people in North America. The Steve Jobses, those people, you know, John Gray, men are from Mars, right. generals like Wesley Clark, who was the head of NATO Allied Forces, people that were super successful. And I wanted to see if the same principles that made my life successful were the ones that they made their life successful. So I want to make sure they weren't idiosyncratic to me. Turns out they were. So I, I used all their stories to illustrate the principles. Right. And a lot of people said, well, that's okay for Steve Jobs. He's from another planet. He's an alien. His DNA is not my DNA. And if you look at infomercials on television, they're not showing a guy who's already making a million dollars. They're showing the plumber, the postman, the farmer, the guy that was, you know, homeless. And so when I did the second edition, which is the one you held up, which came 10 years later, I illustrated most of the principles with stories of people who read the first book and applied those principles. So people could go, oh, that guy's just like me. That guy was homeless. This woman you know, lost her job. That person couldn't get pregnant, but they did. You know, I have a guy who applied 100% responsibility. He was overweight. His wife couldn't get pregnant. And he said, I've done everything. Have you lost 60 pounds? What do you mean? Well, there's research that shows people that are obese that their semen's not as strong. Oh. I'll go do that. He did it. And guess what? Got pregnant. His wife got pregnant. So I, lo like, I love his response. What do you mean? What are you asking if he's lost 60 pounds? And his response is, what do you mean? Exactly. Exactly. But see, people don't research. I remember being, I, I've given tens of thousands of talks, literally. And people will come up and I, I, I love to hang out with people at the end. And you know, they have to throw me and them out of the hotel at the end. And um, someone said, my, my kid wets his bed. What do you recommend? I happen to know because I had a kid who was a bedwetter and so forth. And I said, before I answer that, have you gone online to look up what to do about bedwetting? No. Have you gone to Amazon to see if there are any books on bedwetting? No. How long has this been a problem? Oh, about a year. Yeah. I don't 
<laughs> I don't get it. You know, like the information right. out there, but some people just have, maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe school was so painful. They just don't want to learn anything anymore. But I think that in general, um, go back to your original question is find out what people want and then show them how they can get it in a reasonable, realistic way. And I would say this to young people and, and anyone, whatever age you are, who's struggling, success is not a sprint. It's a triathlon. You know, there are going to be those few people who take an online marketing class and all of a sudden, I met a guy like this. He, he sells towels online. He makes a million a year selling towels. He found the right product, the right internet, in, in the internet marketing class, and he made a million dollars selling towels. That's rare. What's really more likely is like what you write about in your book, takes four years of work. You know, it takes 10,000 hours to become a master. I say if you work with a master, you can get there faster, working with someone yeah. like you or me or you know whoever else that has already achieved what you want uh, can help you because you can shortcut a lot of things that we learned, you don't have to suffer through. But you have to commit to what Tony Robbins calls Kanai, C-A-N-I, constant and never-ending improvement. And that's why I've read 3,000 books. That's why you've interviewed, you probably learned as much from interviewing people as you did from any book you ever read. And you For probably sure. more because that's more your style and personality. And um, you know, we all find our way. If it's watching YouTube videos, TED Talks, listening to books on tape, whatever it is, but be a learner. Yeah, there you go. I was... I was gonna ask you if what's the most important thing you've ever learned in your entire career, and you might have just said it. I think so. I mean, I, I always say, you know, if I had my life to live over, I would have written sooner, because books really do make a difference. They made a difference in your life. I know your books that you've written. Yeah. It's allowed you to help a lot of people and also gain income and influence from it. I would say the best thing I ever learned. Probably from Stone to, you know, take 100% responsibility for my life. That was life-changing. My yeah. dad, he wasn't a union man, but he was kind of like that. You know, the corporations screw everybody over and all that. And I, I had that mentality when I went to work for Stone. He made us go down to the Chicago um, uh, Exchange. And as people came out and got into their limos, all of us young radicals that were working for him at that time, and thanked them for being models of inspiration instead of going, you, you suck, you screw right, up, right, whatever. Right. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, you've got to really get that, that success is not a four letter word. Cause I grew up in right. that kind of 60s, 70s radicals belief set about that. And I think when I learned that, that money is the root of all philanthropy, not the root of all evil, you know, it's people's lust after greed is the root of all evil, not money. And um, so he, changed a lot of my thoughts about success and I would have to give him a lot of credit for that. Yeah, there's interesting demonization of big business, right? But uh, as you said that, I just thought, well, uh, money's also the root of all employment. There you go, there you go. I got 12 employees and they're very happy about me. <laughs> right, of course, and the money you risked to create exactly. the business and the yeah the millions of hours you invested. Yeah. Hey, I, I, I want to ask you as we wrap up, what, what's the future of the Canfield organization? What are you guys doing now that you're really fired up about? I and think, what's your vision for the next four or five yeah. years? 
I think a couple things were fired up about. One, I'll come from what we've been traditionally doing, then something we just started to do. Uh, traditionally, we've been a training and a publishing company. You know, we don't publish the books, but we author the books and have them published by traditional yeah. publishers. Um, so we develop courses and classes. I teach them live. We teach them online and we have click to buy courses, you know, where you just click and it's all been recorded and you can go through it, yeah. get certified in certain things and so forth. So when the pandemic hit, you know, we had about a half a million dollars in deposits that we would have had to return if we couldn't pivot all those people into online trainings. And we lost a few people, but we were successful. And we developed a bunch of new classes and coaching programs and master mastermind groups and so forth, all of which have been super successful. And I think what we've learned from that is that a lot of people talk about what's the new normal going to be. We use the phrase, the phrase, the new better. So two things happened for me out of this that switched everything. Number one, some of my keynotes I couldn't do, you know, conferences. I speak at these big thousand person conferences. I had one with Bacardi, the rum people, supposed to go to Bermuda talked to their 400 managers coming in from around the world. They had to cancel that because Bermuda was in lockdown. Nobody could go in or out of Bermuda. I don't even know if it's still open uh, or closed. But anyway, they said, since all of our people are at home, why don't we open up to all 4,000 employees instead of the 400 managers? So now I got to talk to 4,400 people, uh, probably sold 2,000 books that day. And I didn't have to fly to Bermuda. I didn't have to fly back. Just walked down from my bedroom to my office, which I'm in right now, and got my full fee. So that that opened up some doorways of what was possible. The second thing is we had a, a, a breakthrough to success course planned, and we had to cancel that. And so we said, uh, let's pivot everyone into an online course, and then we'll open it up to people overseas, because mostly it'll be people from Southern California who are going to come to that. So we had people from like, I think it was 42 countries sign up that never would have come to a week weekend workshop in LA. So now we're really doing a lot more international and we're recording it so people can watch it in Asia later. And sometimes we're doing one in the morning and one at night so we can hit the European market and the Asian market. Uh, we've also, this is the other thing that's traditional that was expanding is our train the trainer program. We set a goal to train a million trainers by the year 2030. So we got 10 years to go. And wow. we, we now have, as you've heard, 3,500 trainers. We've now identified about 50 what I call senior trainers. We're going to train them to be trainers of trainers, certify them in different all the continents, and then unleash them to do that. And so our goal is still a goal I think is possible to do. Plus, we now are training people. So let me go over to the, the new thing we took on. So when the pandemic hit, I remember 2008, 2009, that's when the big economic crisis hit. We had the same problem. We were primarily teaching teachers and doing lots of educational conferences and workshops. And that money all dried up. And so it was like, we have to become a public seminar company, a corporate training company, et cetera. Last question, then I'll let you go, because I'm sure you have a full calendar. If there's one program that somebody wanted to subscribe to beyond your book, but a program, an online program, so that they could get introduced to you and your work, like the starter program, something online. Uh, what is it and where would they find it? Go to jackcanfield.com. That's easy. And I would go to um, 
if we have a free 10 day program you can take, which is called um, the uh, success challenge, 10 day success challenge. And it'll take you through 10 days of about five minute lessons, uh, which will introduce you to how to apply some of these principles we talked about. If you want to go deeper and it, kind of our entry level course you'd pay for, which is a couple hundred bucks, is called uh, Yelp, uh, Your Extraordinary Life Program, Y-E-L-P. Um, that's a great way to start as well if you want to like go deeper and really, really dig into it. Um, but at the very least, go to the website, jackinfo.com. Get on the, e the mailing list because what I do every, every, every three months, Richard, I do a free call. I have about a thousand people on that call. I take people through a 30-minute belief change exercise where we identify one belief that's subconscious, you don't even know you have it, that's blocking your success. And I do that as a public service uh, and as a way to get people to see the power of the work we do. And then people, if they decide they want to do more, they can. But the point being that you don't want to miss, that's a great opportunity. So at least get yeah. in the game so you're aware of that. But 10-day uh, success challenge and then also the uh, your Extraordinary Life Program. Virtual training, life coaching club, online. Uh, what you just mentioned, Jack, like get on Jack's mailing list and tap into that free program, jackcanfield.com, because that's going to give you a toe-in. Yeah. And then you're going to find, you know, what is Jack doing where you can hitch a ride? Because, you know, one of the like low hanging fruit success principles is all of us for nothing or a little tiny bit of money, the same amount of money we're spending for coffee or, you know, Netflix, we can tap into a multi multi-millionaire um, that will give us the wisdom of the ages and give us the formula. And all we have to do is follow directions and put the work in and four, five, six, seven years later, folks, life, you know, nothing will be the same for you. In fact, four or five months from now, if you do the work, nothing will be the same for you. Jack Canfield, thank you immensely for your contribution of time, scheduling, <laughs> carving out the hour. I know what that's like and i'm just a little podcaster out there very generous of you to lend me your presence and i appreciate it immensely and uh, i look forward to working with you and continuing learning from you for the rest of my life well thank you very much and i've also been learning from you about what you're an expert in so it goes both ways thank you very much Thank you, gang, for listening to the Authentic Networker podcast. This is Richard Blissbrook. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to The Richard Brook Show to learn about network marketing and hearing stories of success. We found that the number one criteria for success is belief. Belief you can, belief you will, belief you are. Belief turns dreams into goals and goals into visions and visions into reality. You can help lift up your team by encouraging them to study these stories over and over again. Repetition is the mother of faith. And if your team is already studying the four-year career, you know its impact on belief and organic growth. If not, you'll want to study it right away and get it into the hands of your team. You can order it at richardbrook.com or amazon.com.